And as soon as you hear them, you remember, this is why I'm here. Because this music is incredible. To hear it live, to be a part of the atmosphere as this song is being played, it's electric. And the reason why I tell that story is because when we can get the melody of the church, right, when we can hear the song that God is playing in his church, it gives us clarity on why we do what we do. While we gather every Sunday, while we sing the songs we do, while we get into God's word regularly, while we gather together in small groups to study his word, all of that is part of a melody that's being played, a song that's being played that God is inviting us through the church to be a part of. John Dixon, who preached with us last week, he has a great quote in his book, uh, Bullies and Saints, where he said this. He said, Christ wrote a beautiful tune, which the church has often performed well and often badly. But the melody was never completely drowned out. Sometimes it became a symphony. God's heart for his church, for his people, is to play the melody that Jesus wrote really well together. This beautiful tune of what it means to, to be called by him, to be loved by him, to be adopted by him, to be uh, transformed by him. So the question is, how do we play that melody well? How do we as a church be the kind of people who say, we know that melody, we understand that melody, and we're pursuing that melody? And to answer that question, we're going to look at a really well-known passage of scripture, one of my favorites, in fact, that we often return to in this church. We talk about a lot, and a lot of churches will talk about this. I'm sure once we get into it, you will, you'll have at least had part of this. Acts 2, 42 through 47. And it's an illustration of what the church looks like, sounds like, feels like when it's pursuing the heart of God. When it's chasing this melody that Christ wrote. So let's read this together. This is Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This passage is a description of what was happening at the very beginning stages of the church. This is the origin story of the church. The, the placement of this kind of in the story of Jesus is Jesus has risen from the grave, but a very small number of people were, were kind of there for that, witnessed that. He's ascended into heaven, and when he told his disciples, he says, I'm going to go because I'm going to send someone to you. I'm going to send the Spirit of God to come and to do in your hearts what God longs to do in your lives. And so Jesus goes and he sends his spirit on a day that we've come to know as Pentecost. A few days after Jesus' resurrection and the spirit comes on that early group of believers, that small group of believers, and we're told that there at that beginning moment, Peter, the friend of Jesus, the dear friend of Jesus, preached the message of Jesus and thousands of people came to know him. And the church all of a sudden exploded into this movement of people that transformed the world. So there's no perfect church out there. There's no church that has played the melody of Jesus exactly as he intends to. But Acts 2, 42 through 47 gives us this kind of sense of what that melody is, what it looks like, what it feels like. And the word that stands out to me about that melody is devotion. Devotion, this passage, they devoted themselves, we're told, in verse 42. 
That's a strong word. It's a powerful word. Devotion is what characterizes the church. And in a way, devotion is a word that defines all of us. Even if we're not someone who would consider ourselves spiritual or consider ourselves religious, all of us have a devotion to something of some kind. All of us are committing our lives to something. We're laying our lives down for something. So the question is, what are you devoted to? What is it that you give your life to? What is it that you give your resources to, your actions, your words, your money, your time? All of these are kind of symptoms or or, or results of what it is that you're devoted to. What's the thing that drives you, that compels you? What do we portray as a church as our highest commitment, our deepest joy? This morning, I want to highlight for you three things that the early church were devoted to that I think gives us a picture of what real church is. Gives us a a picture of what the character of the church should be. Three things. First, they were devoted to a message, they were devoted to a movement, and they were devoted to a mission. First one's this, they were devoted to a message. Now, I, I travel in a lot of crowds of devoted people because I am a nerd. There is very few people on the earth who are quite as devoted as nerd culture out there. If you're in this circle, you know about this, you know the things you can do, and I've, I've mentioned many times, I've gone to Comic-Con, which I, I really enjoy, but the average person, they would be astounded by the level of devotion in that room. There's some people who are a little bit too devoted to their costumes when they don't quite fit the sizes, all things like that. There's all kinds of ridiculous things going on at Comic-Con. But it's a room full of devoted people. It's a room full of people who are committed to something. They're passionate about something. They're excited about something. The early church was passionate and excited about one thing in particular, a message. They were devoted to a message. Told in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And that's just kind of a summary statement of what the message of Jesus is. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Who Jesus was, what he did, why he came, all of that formed a foundation for the church. It was their foundation. The message of Jesus was everything to them. They didn't come together to fight social injustice or address community needs or to launch into political action or do any one of a thousand different things that they could do as a group of people. They came together to hear, to celebrate, and to rejoice in the message of Jesus. Who he was, what he did, what he accomplished. That message gave them two fundamental truths about the world and about themselves. First of all, that they were sinners in need of a redemption story. They were broken people who needed things to be put right in their own hearts, in the world around them, all of it. And second, that that redemption story was one man whose name was Jesus. That is the message of the gospel. Tim Keller puts it this way. The early church realized that they were worse than they ever dared believed but they were also more loved than they could ever dare dream. The early church was more worse than they ever dared believed and more loved than they could ever hope. And that message that Jesus had revealed to them by his life and his death and his resurrection, it became their passion. Everything about them, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because they wanted to hear it again and again and again. 
They wanted to take hold of that message and apply it to every corner of their lives. It was the way that they started to view their marriages and their relationships and their parenting, their careers. It was the way that they viewed their money and their resources and their time. It wasn't just a one-time thing that they had. Sometimes we can portray the message of Jesus as though it's kind of a, a one momentary idea that you say yes to and then you're done with it. But that's, that's not the message of the early church. The gospel is not something that you say, yes, I agree with that. It is something that takes hold of your life and rearranges it. Completely remakes you, renews you. People who followed Jesus in the early centuries, they knew this. They knew if you're going to follow Jesus, this wasn't just saying, yeah, I like that philosophy. I like that idea. I like this kind of debate. They said, no, this, this means that I've got to become new. Because I'm worse than I ever dared believed, but I'm more loved than I ever dared dream. I'm becoming something new because of this man, Jesus, because of what he's done. He's called me to a new life. Listen to how Paul talks about the message of Jesus in his letter to the Romans. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you, do you hear the passion in Paul's voice? Gospel's everything to him. The message of Jesus, the story of Jesus. We need to recover that kind of conviction about this message, about this story, about this man. Jesus is not just one more idea amongst a litany of different options out there of how to live your life and how to think about yourself. Jesus is the definitive and final word on what God says about us and what God says about our world. So let me just clear this one more time. If we are to be a church that says we want to experience grace, we say that regularly, we want to be a place where we can experience grace, it has to start with the message of the gospel. It has to start with a devotion to the message of the gospel. It's the best thing that we've got to offer in this place. All the good advice and the good counsel and the encouragement and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers, it flows out of this message of who Jesus is. He is the experience of grace. The news that you do not need to be for yourself what you need because God has been for you what you need. Second thing that the early church was devoted to was a movement. Devoted to a movement. Told in Acts 2, 44 and 46, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Sally Church was one thing in particular. It was a movement of people. It was a gathering of people coming together around this message. Everything they did, it wasn't in isolation. When they heard the message of Jesus, they didn't say, okay, I'm going to take that home, think about it by myself for a little bit. They got together and they talked about it together. They wanted to grow in their faith together. The early church was a movement of people together. And they did two things. They moved forward and they moved together. They, first of all, they moved forward. Christ started something in them that they wanted to see the end of. They knew it wasn't just a one-time thing, as we've already said. They knew that this was going somewhere. There was, there was an end result in their life. There was a transformation that was happening, and they wanted to find out what that was. They'd been introduced to Jesus, and now they wanted more of them. And God wanted more for them. That's why in Ephesians 4, Paul's talking about the church. He's talking about the, the aim of what they are to do together. And he says this. He says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry 
for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I'm going to pause there in that passage. There's so much there we could keep going. But the heart is this. is God's desire for us is not simply to agree, but to grow. His desire for us is to grow in faith, for us to continue to become the, the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Pastor Jeff shared a really great message with our staff this last week. We were kind of getting ourselves ready for a new ministry year. We wanted to remind ourselves, refresh ourselves, and, and Pastor Jeff said this. He said, God doesn't want more from you. He wants more for you. I think that is a beautiful summation of what the gospel is. Not more from you, as if you could bring anything to God that would be sufficient. He wants more for you. The message of the gospel is not a story of what you need to bring. It's a story of what God wants to give. New life, hope, encouragement. Second thing that the church is devoted to was moving together. They were devoted to a movement. They moved forward together, and then they moved together at all. They were family. You know that that early church was an amalgamation of the strangest groups of people, the most odd groups of people that shouldn't have gone together. There was different ethnicities, different cultures, different backgrounds. There was people from across the political spectrum coming and showing up together to be devoted to this, these teachings and this message and this people. Because Jesus broke down dividing walls between people. And they were coming together, not out of religious obligation. They weren't saying, well, man, if I don't do this, if I don't get together with other people in church, then God's going to be frustrated. No, they said, I want to be there because I want to grow in my faith. I want to be with people in church so I can see more of God flow into my life. I want to be there when we're getting into his word and we're walking through that together. I want to be there in my joys and in my struggles. I want to be there in my burdens and my pains and my sorrows. And I want to be there even when it's inconvenient and difficult. Because I want to be devoted to this movement that God started. But to find the kind of devotion that the early church had, it has to be a choice. It's not something that always comes natural to us. Robert Bella, who is uh, a scholar, he said that the one thing Americans hold dear is the idea that I'm not accountable to anybody but myself for the meeting of my own needs. Deeply individual culture. I'll throw British people in there too, so I'm not dissing Americans unnecessarily. And we could go even wider than that, couldn't we? There's something deep in the hearts of people that says, I don't want to need others. I uh, I was listening to a a great sermon this week by a guy called Paul Tripp, and he was talking about parenting. And the title of the sermon which attracted me was, I Hate Parenting. I was like, oh, that sounds good. (laughs) But he was talking about how we're born into this world, and children are kind of born with this innate sense of self-sufficiency, right? If If you're a parent, you can remember that moment when you're seeing your child try to tie their shoe and they're having a hard time with it, or they're trying to get something done, they're having a hard time with it, and you let them do it for a little bit because you love them, you don't want to get in their space, but eventually, because you love them, you say, hey, can I help you with that? And what does the child say? No, get away from me. That's putting it politely. They get so angry. Why is that? Because there's something deep inside of the heart of a child that's in the heart of all of us, by the way. It's just that we get better at hiding it that says, I don't want to need other people. I want to do it myself. I want to be able to have total ownership of this. And friends, the message of the gospel is that you need God and you need others. You need his church. You are not self-sufficient. In our culture, 
this need for self-sufficiency, it leaves us it being transient, it leaves us being isolated, it leaves us being addicted to the wrong things, it leaves us ultimately unhappy. And if you remember last week, John Dixon reminded us that actually what the statistics show is that those who have found themselves in Christ are experiencing a far deeper joy. They share their meals with glad and generous hearts. They discover the true freedom of community, of being known. Last thing that the church was devoted to in Acts 2 is they were devoted to a mission. Told in Acts 2.45, they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were on a mission to give away what they received and they were on a mission to live out what they believed. Give away what they received, live out what they believed. The early church was marked by generosity because they had received generosity. Because they'd seen the God of the heaven give literally everything that he had for them. There's a great song that we sing sometimes in church called, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. And one of the lines in that says, There is no more for heaven now to give when we're singing about Jesus. If you've ever prayed and said, God, I need your blessing. I want you to come in my life. I want you to understand there is nothing more that he can give you than Jesus. He's emptied everything he has for you in Christ. He's been so generous, so loving. And so generosity became a part of the early church. They gave because God had given to them. They were intentional about making their lives useful to the building of the kingdom. To give what they could, to bring what they could, to contribute however they could. And it led to some of the most remarkable things being said in history about the church. I want to share this quote real briefly by the Roman Emperor Julian. He's writing in the 4th century and he's talking about the progress of Christianity because it was pulling people away from the Roman gods. And this is what he said. He said, I've been, uh, atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. By the way, atheism, don't get tripped up there. That's what he calls Christianity because they don't believe in the Roman gods. So he's saying, these guys, the Christian faith, these atheists, they have been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It's a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Do you know what the emperor is saying? They're doing it better than we are. They're taking care of our own people better than we are. They're loving and serving and laying themselves down for people better than we are. Why? Because they wanted to live out what they believed. They wanted to become the embodiment of the message that they were devoted to. That was their mission. First John 3, 16 through 18 says, By this we know, love, that he laid his life down for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's what it means when we say we want to be a church that makes an impact for where we are. It means that we want to live out this experience of grace that we've received. We want to grow in faith by seeing the needs around us and saying, God, you have called us to be your hands and feet, to be the embodiment of your son here amidst our city, amidst our community. For the church to find our devotion to these things, there is something that we need. Because to be devoted to a message, a movement, a mission, those are all great things. They don't happen without one more devotion. 
One more devotion that is the reason for all of the others. Devotion to a man. Devotion to a man. You see, the vision of the true church is not a people devoted to a certain set of behaviors or ideas. It's not that we just really like the idea of becoming this kind of description that we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47. It's because we're devoted to Jesus. Jesus who gave himself for the church. Who out of love for the church laid himself down. Jesus who said, I will build my church. It doesn't say you will build my church or together we'll build the church. It says, I'll build my church. And that's what you see at the end of Acts 2, 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. See, we seek to grow in our devotion to him because he's devoted to us. He's the one who's building the church. He's the one that's causing all these things to come into being amongst this people. They couldn't have done that by themselves. There's so many groups throughout history who have tried to do the same kinds of things as the church. Hasn't worked. Why? Because Christ isn't at the center. He is the reason that the church grows. He is the builder of the church. Everything beautiful about the church and purposeful about the church and right about the church is because of Jesus. The church should strive to be an echo of Jesus. When people hear us, they hear him. When people see us, they see him. That's why Peter says in Acts 4, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then most interestingly, in the verse following that, 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized what? That they'd been with Jesus. What we're seeing in these guys, this experience, it's not them, it's Jesus. This incredible thing that's happening through them, the words that they're seeing, they were impacted by the church, not because of the greatness of Peter of John, but because of the greatness of Jesus. As we come towards the end here, I, I want to finish by reading this one quote that sums up what devotion to Jesus really can do in the church. And this quote is by, uh, an, 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 not an atheist, but an unbelieving hist historical scholar called Tom Holland. He wrote a big book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remailed the World. And he, he wrote this from the perspective of someone who wasn't inside, just kind of an observer of history. And this is what he said. I'll be on the screen so you can follow. It says, to be a Christian is to believe that God became a man and suffered a death as terrible as any mortal has ever suffered. And this is why the cross, the ancient implement of torture, remains what it has always been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution. It's the audacity of it. The audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe that serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and of the civilization to which it gave birth. Today, the power of this strangeness remains as alive as it has ever been. It is manifest in the great surge of conversions that has swept Africa and Asia over the past century, in the conviction of millions upon millions that the breath of the Spirit, like a living fire, still blows upon the world, and in Europe and North America, in the assumptions of many more millions who would never think to describe themselves as Christian. And what he means there is all of the different cultural influences that have come from the message of Christianity. The Judeo-Christian ethic, the idea of who Jesus is, the value for human rights and for medicine and for caring for the poor and the orphan, all that was unheard of until Christians showed up. And he says, many more would never think to describe themselves as Christian. 
all of them are heirs to the same revolution, a revolution that has at its molten heart the image of a God dead on a cross. His point is that the church will always be at its best when we hold up God, when we hold up Christ on the cross, when we hold up the Savior who is devoted to us. We can talk all day about our devotion. It's pale next to the devotion of Jesus, who was so devoted to his church that he laid himself down for it. That's what the melody of Jesus is. That's what a true purposeful Christian life is. The work that God began in Jerusalem all those years ago, it's still going on. And the heart of Chapel Street, when we say that we want to be a family of neighborhood churches, what we're saying is that we want to be a people who continue to pursue this message, continue to pursue this mission, continue to pursue this movement, this vision of a man who gave himself for us. God become a man giving himself for us. And God has allowed us to do that in a variety of very unexpected and strange ways at times in ways that has led to the development of four different campuses, which, by the way, are not the family of neighborhood churches. The family of neighborhood churches is not the campuses. It's the homes that comprise the church together. It's the chapels on their own street. It's, it's the family of God spread out across many different neighborhoods that say together we want to hold up Jesus in our neighborhoods. And it's led to some really great partnerships with some incredible people who God is using to reach neighbors that we could never reach. And one of those is a man named Danny Flores. One of the things I love about our church is we, we, we don't really have rules on who we're going to connect with and partner with. As long as the gospel is being advanced, the name of Jesus is being lifted up, and people are coming to know him. And it's made for great opportunities to get connected with people that we wouldn't otherwise have by not staying in our own tribe, in our own hall. And, and Danny is a, another pastor in, in Elgin. And he is reaching the Latino community. And he has partnered with us, came together, and we've decided to do this joint uh, venture together that is called Capilla, which is Spanish for chapel. And he's hosting that in our South Street campus. And I think it's a great picture of what it looks like to be the church. So I wanted to close this morning just by hearing from Danny, his story, and seeing this picture of what it looks like when God builds his church. Let's take a look together. My name is uh, Daniel, but people call me Danny. Born and raised in Mexico till the age of uh, 17. That's uh, when I uh, made up my mind to come into America. If I can be brutally honest, I mean, I was here illegally. Um, had to work under a different name. I had no worker's permit, but I had to survive. And that's kind of what I did. And a few months after I got here and started working, there was a church in the neighborhood that was doing outreach in the trailer park where I lived. And I remember just being outside, getting high. I was lost. I had been addicted um, to drugs since the age of 13. I remember this church came, and they were just going trailer by trailer. And they stopped at ours, and uh, they asked me how I was doing. Um, I had to pretend I was fine, and they noticed that there was something wrong with me. And they said, hey, man, listen, uh, we want to invite you to church. I said, yeah, 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 when is it? They said, Sunday. So I went to church that Sunday, and I remember just sitting in the back. And as I'm sitting there, and the pastor's preaching, I felt like nobody was there. And the church was packed, but I just felt like nobody was there, and I felt as if he was talking to me. Um, and I remember just crying in the back, crying. I was lonely. I was afraid. I was stuck, I was in chains, I was in bondage, I was addicted. 
But I remember that day, like if it was today, just the message of the gospel, right, piercing my heart. At that moment, um, I felt that the Holy Spirit was telling me, right, uh, you're going to be a pastor one day. From the moment I gave my life to the Lord and the pastor started discipling me, and then I started serving in the church, and then um, I had to uh, work in the morning, and then I went to do uh, ESL classes, uh, English as Second Language classes at night, and then right afterwards, uh, there was a GED class. Here I am learning English and at the same time trying to, you know, be up to speed to the education of the United States because I was in Mexico and I only went to fifth grade, so it was so hard, but um, that was like, I'm sorry, that was like the step to to like be able to um, go into ministry or, or study to be a pastor, right? And I was so passionate, so sorry it just brings back memories of those times because it was hard like being illegal in the country right it was tough i'm so passionate about immigrants i'm so passionate about serving the latino community that's why i'm i'm so passionate about hurting those who struggle with addictions those who you know are lost and because of where I come from, and I, I take it as, man, that's the journey that the Lord allowed me to go through to be able to now serve Him and serve His people, and to many, the least of these, right? Spanish-speaking people that are in the country, that come from other places, that are, you know, first-generation Latinos, we definitely feel out of place. We already assume that people don't want us here, right? We assume that. It's not, it, it might not be the case, but we assume that. So sometimes we're even afraid to make eye contact, right? Because it's like, no, I, I, I shouldn't be here. This is not my home. So how can the American church integrate the Latino church into what the Lord is doing, right? There are certain things that are obvious, right? Like utilizing resources and, and being generous above and beyond is, 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 is you know, that's a given. Like I've, I, I think many churches do that. But one thing is uh, the relational part. The gospel is about relationships. So it's, what, it was, it's, it's what's going to make the difference. It's making the effort, right? To maybe you're not going to be the best of friends, but if you can some way, somehow build a friendship or relationship with someone in your community that doesn't look like you, that might not have your background, your social status, right? And that you can start to build some type of relationship with them. Um, it's going to be very impactful. Since the month of uh, April, we started uh, something called Capilla, which is an all Spanish church in the South Street campus. You guys have this this thing at, at Chapel Street that uh, says for where you are. For Capilla, we decided to do something that's called para todos y para donde estés. For everyone and for where you are. The thing is that um, in our culture, in the Latin American culture, when you come into a country that is not yours, you want to know if you are welcome, right? Because not many people feel welcome. So for us, we wanted them to know that they are welcome. There's a story about a 
a young man who came to the Lord there, right, lost, just like Danny when he was 17, lost, hurting, in pain, and gave his life to the Lord in one of our family nights that we had, one of our worship nights. And two weeks ago, he got baptized there on outside of the South Street campus. We did it just for him, but we did something very special for him. And um, his family was there, and it was just awesome. His family's restored. He's serving the Lord. He's he's has been healed. You know, it, it's just amazing to see, right? That we haven't even started. People are already coming to the Lord and already getting baptized and and being discipled. You know, and that's what Capilla is all about. You know, just reaching the least of these, reaching those who are lost. It doesn't matter where you come from, right? And for us, um, doing it for him was like, man, this is not about the great numbers, but this is about that one soul right, that needs to know Jesus. That same feeling that I had when, when I gave my life to the Lord and I was being called into ministry, is, 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 is the same feeling and, and the same confirmation and the same calling that I feel now that the Lord is calling us to do Capilla. This was being prepared in Mexico, you know? 13 years old when that kid was lost. Isn't the gospel amazing? God has been amazing. God is amazing. That's what he does. We love because he first loved us. And my hope and my prayer for our church, always, always, is that we would continue to see God the way that Danny just talked about. The way that he articulated him. That we would realize the joy of belonging to him, of being his people. And for the next few weeks, that's what we're going to do. We are going to travel through a pathway of discipleship, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to live a purposeful, intentional, Christ-centered life. And my hope is that we would realize the joy of belonging to him, not the obligation of belonging to him, not the task of belonging to him, but the joy. So would you pray with me as we close that that's, that's where our hearts would rest, the joy of belonging to him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your son who has loved his church by laying himself down, by washing out with the water of the word, making the church into a pure, spotless bride. God, we will spend eternity being enamored by the love of your son for his church. God, please, I pray over these next four weeks, we know that you do not want more from us, but you do want more for us, so help us. Help us to be the family of neighborhood churches that seeks to see the world transformed by the message of the gospel. Help us to be a church that is a place where people can experience grace, grow in their faith, and impact where they are. Help us to be your church. Amen. I want to thank you for joining us for worship today. I hope you've been encouraged. I hope that God has breathed some of this heart that he has for his church into you. Uh, but if there's any way we can pray for you, encourage you, we don't just want to talk about it, we want to live it out. We want to be it. And so please don't hesitate to come find me, find Pastor Stetson, any of, any of our volunteers around. We have a prayer team available in our back room that would pray with you if you need that. Uh, we would love to encourage you however we can. But for now, let me leave you with this benediction from Ephesians 5. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's in his name that we go. Amen.